Please be seated. Good morning. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. If you're visiting us this morning, we're glad to have you here. Thanks for coming and joining us. Uh, a special welcome this morning. I, I see Colin and Margaret on the front row, our newly married couple. Is this your first Sunday back? Second. Oh, okay, good. Because I've always thought it was sort of awkward when you first come back to church after being married. Everybody's looking at you. But it's their second week back, so they're okay. <laughs> but we're glad to have you guys here. If you're just joining us this morning, we're in a summer series looking at the life of Abraham. The title of that series is called Living in Light of God's Promises. As Abraham was somebody living in light of God's promises when they seem very near and when they seem very far off. We're going to be in chapter 16 this morning, reading the whole chapter. You'll find that on page 11 if you're using one of our pew Bibles. Let me pray for us and then we'll dive right in. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You uh, this morning that we could be here worshiping You. Some of us come this morning maybe very well prepared and excited as we've come to sing Your praise, to pray, to confess our sin, to hear again Your forgiveness, to hear Your Word. Others of us may be um, not so ready or not so sure that You're to be found here um, as we praise You, that we call out and are You listening Uh, Would you show us again, or for the first time today, that it's true that you do, that you see us, that you are with us. Would you speak to us through your word by the power of your spirit? We ask this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived When she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. 
This is the word of the Lord, and it's given to us for our good and for His glory. Uh, some of you will be familiar with a, a, a public radio show called um, This American Life. Ira Glass is the host. And every week they, they tell these stories based around a theme uh, from different people's lives. And, and one, one time a few years ago they had a show called Superpowers. And, and they were, the whole thing was dedicated to uh, superheroes and superpowers. And uh, they, they told the story of a, of a guy who was a comic book writer. And, and he talked about how when he was a child and he became convinced that he was a superhero hero himself because he was taking a shower and as the shower went on he kept turning the hot water up and up until it was full bore and his skin was not scalded he was convinced he was a superhero until later in life he realized that the hot water was simply running out and he wasn't being burned because of that but he thought he was a superhero and in that show, one of the things they do is they, they interview people and ask them this question. If you could have, if you could have a superpower and your choice was be, between being able to fly and being invisible, and, and there was some quibbling among the people they interviewed. They said being invisible wasn't really a superpower, but that's, that's what they asked. If you could fly or, or be invisible, what would you choose? And they talked to all these people on the street about what they would choose. And a lot of people said things like, I want to fly because, I mean, just think you could, you could be in the air. It's like a bird. You're powerful, all this. And, and a few people admitted, you know, if I could choose, I'd choose to be invisible. And in fact, there was this one woman they interviewed, and she said, I'm sure that lots of people are going to tell you they choose to fly, but they are lying. Because deep down, if we had the choice, we would all choose to be invisible. And this story is about someone um, who's trying to be invisible and finds out that she's not. And it's about our reflex to try to hide from God, to try to run from Him in one way or another and be invisible. The the hinge of this story that we've just read here in 16 uh, comes right near the end there um, in verse 13 when Hagar names God. She says this, um, she, she has this aha moment where she realizes suddenly that, that she's really not invisible to God. And she, and she says this, truly, I, excuse me, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. That second part is a difficult phrase to translate, and it's more literally really a question. She says something like this, Have I really seen the one who sees me? Have I seen him? And this, for Hagar, is her moment of, of insight and amazement and even of transformation because it's the moment that she realizes that she is not invisible to God and that her visibility to God is a beautiful, good gift. In fact, she comes to see in this that God, who, the God who sees her, sees her comprehensively in all the parts of who she is. Okay, so what we're going to see from her this morning is, is simply this, the point that God sees us. He sees us. And that coming to grips with the implication of God seeing you can make you a person who is marked by faith more than fear. A person who has real strength. And reliance and real strength and resilience in life, a person of deep hope and joy. And that's not a bad way to start the week, is it? Become a person like this. We're going to see it here as we see God, uh, our God of seeing. We see that God sees us in our sin. We see that God sees us. And we see that God sees us through. God sees us in our sin. He sees us and He sees us through. First, God sees us in our sin. This is verses 1 through 6 in our passage this morning. 
Uh, you notice the, the um, author doesn't just come out and say something like this as we open chapter 16. And now we're going to show you what a complete train wreck the life of Abraham, Sarai, and Hagar are, and how it's utterly torn apart by sin and how we really shouldn't live that way. <laughs> because the writer of uh, Genesis knows what all writers know. One of the early lessons you hear is show, don't tell. Don't tell us about it. Demonstrate it to us. And what we see here as we read these verses is that their lives are, in fact, a train wreck. It is, it is just one of the biggest messes we find in all the book of Genesis and in many ways of all the families in Scripture because we see a family that is being torn apart by sin and by the sin, in fact, of all the people who are involved. First, we see Sarah here, and maybe hers is most obviously on the surface. If you've been with us as we've been reading through and looking at the life of Abraham, you know that Abraham has had these struggles with faith and Abraham has had these moments where he is uh, unbelievably and gloriously trusted in the promises of God and other moments when he has done all that he can to somehow grasp God's promise for himself, not trusting God to come through for him. He's had these highs and these lows and Chapter 15, he's reminded again of God's great promise for him. And then 16 opens up with Sarah's dark moment, with Sarah's struggle with faith. It opens up and Abraham has been reminded of God's promise that he's going to give him a a son and descendants as numerous as the stars. And 16 opens up with the problem for Sarah that she has no children. And you hear the bitterness in her voice in verse 2. God has not given me any children. And so maybe I can get some children this way. And so she looks at her barrenness. She looks at the possibility that maybe she herself is not going to be included in this promise that God gave to Abram. She comes up with a solution, in many ways a faithless solution of her own. I know what I'll do. I will take my maidservant Hagar and I'll give her to Abram. And then if they, if, if, if she's able to conceive because she is my servant, then that child will be counted to me. This is how we will build up our family. Now we look at that and are um, scandalized by it. It, it, it was a culturally, uh, it, it had cultural precedent in her day. That's not to excuse it, but it does put it in context. There are records all through the ancient Near East of, of examples like this where uh, a master and a mistress, they could, their servants, you know, he, the, the master could take one of those servants as a second wife, as a concubine, and any children given to her would be credited to, uh, to the first wife, in this case, Sarah. Now, the Bible, as you know, if you've read the Old Testament, it contains several examples where we do see things like this of polygamy in the Bible. And so people ask the question, you know, is the Bible for polygamy? And the truth is that it's not. From the very beginning of Genesis, it speaks of Adam being given his wife Eve and it sets this precedent of marriage of a man and one woman in marriage. But we do see examples of polygamy. And what's interesting, if you look at any of the people in Scripture who married more than one uh, spouse at the same time, their lives uh, took an immediate turn for the worse. There was incredible trouble, incredible strife that comes into their household as they entered into this culturally acceptable um, institution of their day. Time and again, the silent verdict of Scripture is 
This only brings destruction in families. And we see it here with Abram and Sarah and as Hagar is drawn into this. And we see the result immediately. As soon as this happens, Hagar, she conceives, she's going to have a baby. And as soon as she knows that, says that she looks with contempt at her mistress, Sarah. Doesn't say what Hagar does, doesn't know. We don't know if she spoke harshly to her. We don't know if we just gave her that sort of sidelong, disdainful look. But we know that Sarah heard those messages loud and clear. And so what does Sarah do? She goes to Abram and says this, verse 5, this is all your fault. Look what you have done to me. May the contempt that's falling on me can fall on you if you don't do something about this. The result is Abram says to her, you know, she's your servant, do as you wish. And she falls in, Sarah falls into this incredible injustice and likely physical cruelty towards Hagar, so much so that it causes Hagar to flee. We see Sarah's sin grabbing hold of her heart as this thing she she so desperately wants, a child, the child of promise, seems denied to her. And so she takes her life in her own hands and will do anything to accomplish it, to grasp it, to find it herself. But Sarah's not the only one sinning in this passage. So is Abraham. He's received these promises of child. Throughout, we've seen mentioned that Sarah is barren. The implication, though not explicitly stated, has been for uh, Abraham that Sarah was to be the mother of this child. And yet he agrees to her plan. What we see, I think, of Abraham here is his incredible passivity in the face of his wife's request. A few chapters ago, Abram led a small hand-picked band of men against an international army and was victorious. And he proved himself to be a powerful warrior. And here two chapters later, he proves himself to be an incredible wimp with his wife. It says in Scripture here that he listened to the voice of his wife. And there are two things going on here that a reader would pick up in their day and that we should as well. Up until now, Abraham time and again has been listening to the voice of God. And here it says that he listens to the voice of his wife. And the phrase here in Hebrew is the same phrase that comes up in Genesis chapter 3 verse 17 when God confronts uh, when God confronts Adam and Eve as they have sinned and he comes to them in the garden and to Adam he says because you have listened to the voice of your wife and taken the fruit here is the curse. The readers of Genesis as they read this in Hebrews they would have been hearing that they would have they would have heard that echo of Abraham is doing the same thing that Adam did stood by, watched it happen, was afraid to engage his spouse at her moment of greatest need. So he goes along with Sarah's plan. He takes a second wife and he becomes complicit in the injustice and cruelty towards Hagar. Verse 6, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her what you please. But Abraham and Sarah aren't the only sinners in this passage. So is Hagar. And the Bible clearly holds that up to us. Verse 4, it says that she looked with contempt on Sarah. And certainly in her context, for her as the servant of this woman, it would have broken every cultural rule. And Scripture seems to uphold this, that she would hold contempt for her mistress, that she is actually sinning against Sarah. She's transgressing the lines of authority, showing contempt for the one that God's put in authority over her. And then she runs away. Okay, now, you may well have this... Objection. 
that you have a huge problem with this, right? Because here's Hagar, she's a slave. She's being mistreated. And then we see her being criticized in Scripture for showing contempt to her mistress and running away. Um, here, here she is, this indentured servant being abused. First, she's given in marriage by Sarah in order to be this tool for getting a child. And second, the angry abuse Sarah heaps on Hagar in response to Hagar's contempt. How can it possibly be that we would talk about Hagar's sin here? I mean, it's like we're talking about two mountains here with Sarah and Abraham and their responsibility and this little molehill over here of the way that Hagar responds. Because culturally for us, I think we're most given to respond sympathetically towards Hagar. I mean, come on, look what she has had to go through. Well, let me just offer this and maybe what the Bible says in response. God cares incredibly about the, in, about the injustice that's done to Hagar here. The rest of our story is going to show that that's true. Throughout the scripture, Old Testament and New, we see that God cares about injustice. He cares about the weak and the defenseless, the widow, the orphan, the one who is a sojourner in the land, the one that has no power. God cares about them deeply. But when we look at injustice like this, here's our question. How big of a view of injustice and sin do you really have? Because it's really clear when we look at Sarah and when we look at Abraham, their sin and their injustice. But how much do we want to really look at the weight of sin for Hagar as well and for us? You see, either God cares about injustice and sin or He doesn't. Either He cares about all of it or He cares about none of it. So it is very true that Sarah and uh, Abraham are sinning in gross ways here, but Hagar's matters too. God cares about sin or he he doesn't. Either uh, he cares about the global sex trafficking in our world, about the drug lords, about the corrupt corporate tycoons. He cares about those, but he also sees you and sees me. He sees the truth of our own lives, our own lack of love, our own petty rebellions, our own pride and arrogance, our own gossip and faithlessness. He sees it all. It all matters. In fact, when God recognizes Hagar's sin, he is actually uh, recognizing her dignity as a morally responsible person. He doesn't say, here's this poor mistreated slave girl, so her actions don't matter. Instead, her actions do matter because she's a woman created in the image of God, created to be like God, created to reflect Him and His character in the world. And so her sin matters. See, God is a God of justice and righteousness, and that applies for all of us. Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously said this, The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. It's the same for us. God sees our sin, our rebellion, our faithlessness, our abuses of other people, our pettiness, our bitterness. And what's our usual reaction? Our response to being seen. We run and we hide. We deny. We obscure. And in those moments when it's exposed, we wish that we too had that superpower of invisibility, but there is no hiding from our God. He sees our sin. Okay, so here's the question for us. What do we do in response? Is the message of Christianity here just shape up? Get it right. Some of you are thinking, this is what I've always thought Christianity was about and why I can't stand it. Okay, well, wait a second. Because we haven't seen yet all that God sees. God sees our sin. But secondly, we see here in our passage, not only does He see our sin, He sees 
us. He sees us in all the various dimensions of our life. Uh, one author, a counselor named Michael Emlett, in a recent book called Crosstalk, Where Life and Scripture Meet, he talks about it this way. He says that as Christians, we are all simultaneously sinners, sufferers, and saints. All those things are true of us all the time, that God sees all of those parts of us. Let me ask you this. Have you ever seen that, that picture? It, it's a couple hundred years old now, sort of famous picture of, that's an optical illusion where it, it, it's a picture of this kind of, um, beautiful young woman and at the same time in, in kind of old, wrinkled woman at the same time. You know what I'm talking about? Half is black and half is white. And so if you look at it for a minute, maybe the first thing that leaps out to you is the older woman, but if you sort of shift your eyes, you can see the younger woman. And have you ever tried to see both those images at the same time? I I tried really hard this week, and my eyes just began to ache. I couldn't quite take it both in at the same time. But what we see here in the story is that God takes it all in at the same time. That he sees all of us all the time, both parts of us, all the parts of us. He looks at Sarah, Abraham, and Hagar, and he sees them in their sin, but he also sees them in their suffering and in their need for him at the very same time. God sees not only our sin, but the person. Think about Sarah. He sees not only her unfaithfulness, but he also sees her very real and very heart-wrenching struggle with infertility. Her insecurity over this whole thing about bearing a child. For anyone who wrestles with infertility, you you know or have known how gut-wrenching and hearted it is uh, for you as as maybe a woman and for you as a couple not to be able to bear a child. But in many ways in this culture, it it had all of that emotional pain and, and more. Because for a woman in that culture, your entire identity was bound up in your ability to have children, to contribute to your family, to contribute to your community in that way. We, if you're someone who suffers with infertility now, it is, it is gut-wrenching and hard. But in that day, everyone would have looked and said, she is, she's less than a person. She can't even do what her central role in society is. And Sarah struggled. And she sins in response. But God doesn't give up on Sarah because of her sin. And as we'll see in later, later chapters, God is not yet finished with his work in Sarah's life. But we see that true to be true with Hagar as well. He sees Hagar not just in her sin of rebellion against Sarah and her running off into the desert, but we see more. He sees one who is suffering unjustly. We see one who is, he sees one who has been turned out, who is broken hearted and who is scared to death for her own life and the life of her unborn child. And we see God being incredibly tender towards her. And we see God even honoring he shows his care for this, for the outcast, for the needy, for the sinned against. The way he comes to Hagar in his tenderness um, is remarkable in, in several ways. First, notice that when, when the angel of the Lord comes to Hagar, you, you see what he says to her? He says um, in verse 7, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. Verse 8, He said to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, if you were to look back in the everything that's come up until now in this chapter, Hagar has never been named by name by any other speaker in the chapter. She's always my mistress, your servant. Now the angel of the Lord, speaking for God himself, comes. It doesn't simply speak about Hagar. It doesn't simply address her in her role in society. But for the first time, he uses her name and he says, Hagar, where are you? Where are you going? 
This is the only time, not only in the Old Testament, but in any other text that's been found from the ancient Near East, the only time in anything from that culture that you have an example in literature of God or a nation's God calling a woman by name. It happens here. Hagar. Secondly, we see not only is she called by name by God and His tenderness for her, that she gives God a name. She looks around and says, could it be that the one that I have seen, the one who sees me, and she gives him a name, she calls him the God of seeing. And Hagar is the only person in the entire Bible to give a name to God. She is being honored here and treated so tenderly as God sees her in her suffering. See, God sees us in all the dimension of our lives as well. He sees in us, as in Hagar, as in Sarah, an opportunity for His grace to be made known, to become concrete. He sees us as He sees Hagar from up close. It says the angel of the Lord comes to her. The angel of the Lord is this mysterious figure in the Old Testament that always comes and speaks for God and often is identified with God Himself as perhaps maybe a physical manifestation before Christ of God Himself coming and speaking to her. The angel of the Lord is God coming to Hagar, not from afar, not from on high, but from right next to her, from up close, as he seeks her out in the middle of the desert. And our God is a God who always comes and seeks out his people from up close. In the Old Testament here, we see an example of the angel of the Lord coming, looking like a person coming to bring God's comfort. In the New Testament, we see Jesus, God in the actual flesh, speaking to us as well, speaking in history, in Scripture, speaking through the Holy Spirit now for us, all of God's people coming to us, God coming close, that He might draw near, that He might speak His tender and healing word to us as well. Just as He came to Hagar, He has come to us in Christ. You see what, you see what that means? God who made everything, who has all power, who is the only superhero, didn't take on the superhero gift of invisibility, but instead made himself visible to us. He made himself visible here to Hagar. He makes himself visible to us in Christ. There are those times when we cry out, God, where are you? And that was certainly the cry of Hagar's heart. And the response she heard from the angel of the Lord was, I'm right here. And it is the cry of our heart as well at times in life. God, where are you? And Jesus answers us here. I am right here. Being called by God means that Jesus speaks into our lives as well. We are called to, maybe not audibly perhaps, but just as truly and powerfully. Because following Christ, being a Christian, is not just a matter of knowing about Jesus, but of knowing Jesus. One who comes to us in person. Not following simply an ideal or an example, but following God in the flesh who first found us, who came after us, who came in person and spoke to us that we might know that He sees us not only in our sin, but He sees us in our suffering. He sees us in our need for Him. And He comes close. See, God sees our sin and He sees us. But finally, we see here in this passage too that God sees us through that He brings good out of the mess of this situation, out of the train wreck of this family. 
How is God going to bring good in our own lives? If the answer to our struggle in life is not simply try harder on the one hand, or, you know, your sin and your suffering don't really matter on the other hand, the answer instead is that God's rescue work of bringing grace and love and healing to the lives of His people comes that it might transform us. Here's how he does it with Hagar. You see that he comes and brings her not only his presence, but just like with Abraham, he comes and brings her promises. Do you see what he says to her? He says, you know, you're going to have this incredible multitude of descendants, which ought to echo for us as God came to Abram and said, I'm going to give you a multitude of descendants. She receives the very same promise because she has been brought in to the promise that God has given to Abraham. And she even, he even, God even comes and promises freedom for her son as well. You look at what the prophecy that's given here about her son Ishmael. Uh, and, and it very much is this mixed bag. On the one hand, he's gonna, he says of Ishmael that, that his hand is gonna be against everyone and everyone's hand is gonna be against him. The reality of Ishmael's life is that it's gonna be full of strife. But at the same time, he comes to this slave woman and says, your son will be a wild donkey of a man. Now, you'll notice uh, that at Margaret's baptism, uh, as Peter got up, he didn't say, Lord, I pray that my daughter will be a wild donkey of a woman. Uh, it's, it's not the kind of blessing that we speak on our children, but here's what it would have meant for them, that it, it would have been this, this desert image of, some, of one who is free, like uh, the Bedouin traders that would have been a part of that day, or Abram himself as he travels around and lives in tents. So as God speaks to the slave woman, he says to her, your son is going to be free. He's going to be free. And maybe Hagar would have seen too the promise for her as well, as she is now being given a son who will care for her. And that maybe one day she will taste that kind of freedom herself. He comes and gives these promises to Hagar. And he comes to, not only with these promises, but with himself, he comes and gives her this assurance of his presence in her life that brings this complete transformation. You notice that God comes and sends Hagar right back into the hard situation of her life. He says to her, you're going to go back to Sarah the one who's been mistreating you. And he doesn't say, and it's all going to get better. Because in many ways, it doesn't. But he comes and tells her to go back, and she listens, and she agrees to. Why? Because something has happened to Hagar. As she has come and encountered this God who sees her, who is with her, she now knows that as she goes back into the hard situations of her life, she does not go alone. That the God who has seen her abuse, who has found her in the desert, is the God who sees her and will provide for her in the very hard realities of her life. She sees, she says, the God of seeing sees me, and then she's able to do what God calls her to do, to abandon her faithless flight into Egypt and instead to listen to God, to return to Abraham and to Sarah goes knowing that God is at work for her. It's the same kind of thing that Paul would later say in Romans chapter 8. She holds this promise, for God works all things together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. See, we get here, I think in Genesis chapter 16, a sober but hopeful realism from the Bible. The Bible doesn't dismiss or downplay the mess or the continued mess of our lives and the effects of bad choices, but He does bring redemption. And He does work even in the mess of our lives for His purpose, that He might turn them around slowly over time and that He might ultimately bring us all the goodness that He plans in this life 
or in the next, but he is at work. God tells Hagar, go back into your life of suffering and justice. I see you and I will take care of you there. God tells us in Jesus, not only do I see your struggle and the suffering and injustices of the world around you, I have been there myself. I've experienced the very worst that this world can bring. I see the mess, I see your mess, and I died and rose again to bring forgiveness and healing there. I see your pain, and I know what it feels like because I have taken injustice and pain on myself. I have died a cruel and bloody death for you. I have been rejected by my own people and the authorities and considered an outcast to be an outcast of God for you. The very bitterness of your experience, he says, I have drunk that cup to the very bottom. I know what you are going through. I have been there, I am here with you, and I am bringing good out of evil, even in your life. I am there with you now. You will know my strength, my encouragement, my support in your suffering and struggle now. And one day, Jesus says to us, you will know my rest when I return. Can you picture Hagar hearing this from the angel of the Lord? She gets up, she turns around, turns her back on Egypt where she was headed. She walks back to the tents of Abraham and Sarah. Not in defeat and not in sorrow, but in hope and even in joy. God sees me. God is with me. God will bring me home. Maybe we should let Hagar have the last word this morning. You are a God of seeing. Truly I have seen Him who looks after me. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that You would remind us again today that You are a God of seeing. Lord, that brings us right into Your holy gaze. You see us for who we are. You see our sin. You see the darkness of our hearts. But You also see us in our struggle and our suffering. And even more importantly, as we put our faith in Christ, You see His righteousness, His holiness given to us that we might be forgiven, that our sin might not have the last word And one day the suffering and difficulty of our life would not have the last word. Would you give us grace this week as we step back into our lives, some of us in very hard places. May we see your provision. May we have hope in you, knowing that you see us, that you are at work. Would you give us all the comfort, all the assurance, the encouragement that we need that we might not simply survive the situations of our lives, but thrive in them because you are here with us. We thank you for this in the name of Jesus, our incarnate Savior. Amen.